Today I'm speaking with Professor Linda Scott, who, among other accolades, is Emeritus DP World Chair for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Oxford and author of Royal Society's shortlisted book, The Double X Economy, in which she details global gender inequality and argues women's economic inclusion will benefit everybody. It's great to have you with us today, Linda. So hopefully ESG investors don't need convincing on why women's economic empowerment benefits everybody, but could you give some examples as to the how? Okay, so I think that, that the argument that um, that empowering women economically, or for example, bringing them into the labor force in bigger numbers, um, I think it's fairly well recognized at this point that that stimulates growth, that that's it's very widely demonstrated at this point. Um, I think, though, that people uh, sort of accept that maybe on faith or, you know, go ahead and go along with it. They don't really understand what the mechanisms are. Um, so it's things um, because you have to get in there and look at what, what are the things, for example, that keep women out of the labor force. And if you're in, for example, an agricultural economy or a more traditional economy in an emerging market, um, there'll be um, there'll be not just cultural norms, but um, rather some unpleasant practices. Okay, like uh, domestic violence um, to um, keep women from going outside the home, for instance. Um, uh, even um, local strictures against, for instance, married women. Married women is married women going into the workforce is what really drives that curve. And, um, and so you have to be realistic. Um, the unpaid care burden, for example, is, is quite a big reason. Um, street violence is quite a big reason. Sexual assault in the workplace. Um, that, that it's not just a matter of training them and encouraging them. You have to look at what is actually holding them back and not just project on them what you think it might be. And that is what tells you then how the causal mechanisms are working to lead you from the position they are now to getting them into the, into the paid labor force, for instance. And so it's really important to be authentic about trying to understand those causal mechanisms. And sometimes they're rather unpleasant. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the broader sense, what we have is empowering women economically uh, does stimulate, does contribute to prosperity, and that's partly because it contributes to growth and better company performance, actually. But it is also because when you, when you level the playing field for women, you significantly uh, ameliorate or reduce or eliminate some fairly significant um, social problems, right? And uh, some things that cause uh, not only additional costs, like domestic violence is extremely costly to countries. And just by eliminating that, you would make a pool of funds available that could be uh, invested in things that were more productive. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, and then, for example, human trafficking. Human trafficking is 71% female, uh, and it comes out of the fact that females are uh, economically vulnerable. Now, human trafficking is part of international crime. Uh, it's a very serious destabilizing force. Uh, it creates geographical risk. So, um, so all of these things that the, um, uh, when you have better uh, gender balanced workplaces, for example, they tend to be less hostile, less toxic, less um, every every man for himself. Um, they're therefore more pleasant workplaces and more productive workplaces. 
Um, when you have more gender balance in a board, you're likely to have more transparency and accountability. So, um, so all of those things taken together make for uh, both work environments and national economies that are just familiar to everybody because they're more stable, they're more transparent, um, they have more funds to reinvest in a, in a positive way. Mm-hmm. There are definitely indicators that you can watch for at the country level. In fact, that is one of the things that is really driving, was driving initially this whole women's economic empowerment movement was that we have had a rather sudden influx of data where we had none before. Mm-hmm. That when you put it together, not only allowed you to compare nations, okay, across on gender equal measurements and gender equality measurements, but also to, um, you know, kind of diagnose and track their progress. Uh, and these indicators um, are are pretty reliable. So, for example, in the most gender unequal countries, uh, you have more poverty and more conflict. Right? Poverty and conflict are not good for countries, and they're not good for people. Mm-hmm. And so, if you can measure improvements in the gender equality, you should be able to measure other outcomes. Mm-hmm. Okay. That are important to you. I do think that for companies, you have to be careful because. A company can only do so much, mm. right? If you're really looking at extreme poverty and instability, for example, um, you know, one company in a situation like that, um, the companies I work with end up feeling like it's the whole um, ecosystem that they need more support from other companies, from governments, and so on and so forth. Now, in the developed countries, we also have to be mindful of uh, how big the problem is and how quickly it's reasonable to expect it to move. Okay, so as much as I would like to see the gender gap close by next year, that's not going to happen even if everybody really works on it because it's such a huge problem. You can't move the needle that fast. There are too many people who are in your, if you will, your sample. So, um, so you have to be, you know, realistic about what it is you're using as your measurement. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, for example, board diversity is relatively quicker to see. Yeah. Um, and so then would be, yeah, because there's fewer people, it's more discreet um, mm-hmm. variable. Well, on that then, on, on board diversity and pay gaps, um, in the UK, the financial sector often doesn't come out very well in the sort of annual gender pay gap reporting um, flurry. Um, what is your advice for leveling the playing field for women in this industry very broadly? Obviously, there's some things that are problematic within the companies that would need to be addressed. Okay, but let me talk first about the, what I see as the bigger, broader problem that's causing this. Because what you're seeing in these numbers that the UK puts out, uh, and I personally think it's very telling that they didn't do it this year, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a good sign. Um, that. Um, that when you have numbers like that, when across the board, actually, women in Britain are more qualified, they have more credentials than men do, and yet you're not seeing them advance, and you're not seeing them paid the same. That means, that has to mean that there's something systemic going on, because it's in the aggregate, and even women, you know, then are persuaded to think it must be something about them, but it's not, it's systemic, and it's too big for one, I mean, one company can solve their own problem maybe, but they can't solve it for everybody else in the sector. Mm-hmm. Okay, and also one of the things that the British data shows is that while the financial sector is a 
is a standout, okay, for for inequality. The inequality is pretty much across all industries, all occupations, all levels, and that too is telling you there is a systemic problem, and it is something about sex discrimination because you find it everywhere. Okay, mm -hmm. it's not you can't attribute it to as is often done. Women pick the wrong industries to work in because all the industries are doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's the case, that's a really broad scale problem. And that, and this is my, you know, my first point is you gotta be willing to call out the government. Uh, it is only the government who would be able to make the kind of broad scale impact that would be necessary to close those numbers. Um, but what the British have done, British government has done by making people report out is good. At the same time, um, they're they're trying to shame the companies into doing something that there's really um, there's no downside to them not doing it because they know that the British government is not going to enforce the equality laws. They simply are not going to do it. They think they can get away from paying women less because there's not going to be a consequence. And I think that the British uh, government has really let down half its citizens, and, you know, basically not protecting the equal with the basic employment rights of half their citizens. And this is a major government failure. Mm -hmm. So first, I would say go to the government. Uh, the second thing is, is that you need to get over the idea that there's something wrong with the women that you have to fix, that they don't have enough training or they are intrinsically poor leaders or some other. In fact, we should not accept those excuses ever. Okay, They're, the data do not support the notion that there's something remedial that needs to be done about the women, and people are using that as a way to not look at the real problem. And um, in the financial sector, you have mostly male, very male-dominant uh, workplaces, and male-dominant workplaces create their only problems. And it's important to look with a clear eye at what those problems are and not try to tell yourself some baloney about, you know, unconscious bias and blow it away, you know, because diversity programs in situations like that get sabotaged and undermined by whoever's in the majority. And that the masculinist culture that, that um, occurs uh, in those environments is quite gender unfriendly. And by the way, it's unfriendly to men as well. I mean, they're toxic uh, in that situation. So, yeah, so you got to be more realistic. you got to be willing to call out the problem. Mm -hmm. You have efforts being made, and that brings in a lot of junior women, and, and then that skews the pay gaps. And you have said that these things can't happen overnight, but is that a reasonable excuse to say, well, you know, we're trying to address it by by hiring now, and then over time that will... Okay, so I have two answers to that, and one is that they've had 50 years. Okay, women have been competitive with men in terms of credentials for 50 years, and they have not done about it, okay? And to come around 15 years later and say, oh, we have to you know, do this by hiring in a bunch of junior women. Well, you hired in a bunch of junior women in 1980, what happens to them, right? Mm -hmm. so, so the idea that this is some kind of recent problem that we need to allow to filter in is, is not honest, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, I think that's a problem. Now, the other thing is I often say that there is no reason to think that if you 
bring in more lambs, there's going to be less slaughter. All right? And this gets back to you need to be honest with yourself about your environment. If you're losing your women, you're hiring men and they're leaving, you have a problem. Mm -hmm. So um, let's talk a little bit about some um, more specific points in your book then, if we can. Um, so there is a part where you talk about gender lens investing, which will be um, you know, on the radar of many of our readers. Um, and you mention a need for kind of new financial indicators. Can you tell me a bit about that? Right. Okay. So it depends on what area of investment or of the Economy that you want to do this in. Okay, so one of the things is just to, for example, have a way of evaluating, there's been a lot of attention to this, have a way of evaluating the performance of major publicly traded companies. And in the book, I talk about the Bloomberg Gender Equality Index, and there are other indices besides that. Mm -hmm. But having an index like that and being able to show how those companies that rate well perform as opposed to companies that do not rate well, right? Gives gives those companies a chance to shine. Hmm. And actually, um, the evidence suggests that they probably will at least perform as well and probably better. And so that then, you know, gives people an incentive to throw their money to that. Right. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is when you're if you're doing something like investing in some kind of, I don't know, bond, let's say bond for a municipal transportation system. Okay, one of the things that's a different financial measure that you need to look at is you need to bring into your uh, evaluation model something like the value of safe commutes. Okay, public danger, um, attacks on women, and that means you're going to design that transportation system a little bit differently. But people te have tended not to think about those as uh, investments that pay back, that actually if you go ahead and cost down what it means to have an unsafe public transportation system, you're going to find out there are some fairly, from the city's point of view, some fairly significant problems, costs, lost opportunities with that. So you have to have a new financial indicator that plans for that, you see. Um, it's also a matter of just being gender aware. For example, um, there was one company that I knew that was working with governments um, to issue um, cards to the women so that they, the debit cards to women so that they could pay them directly their government benefits and they could be taken out as the women needed them during the month. Well, un, it was unexpected that what happened was is that the women got more of the money um, to actually apply to poor family needs and so on and so forth because as long as they were sending out checks, uh, the women were having to go into check cashing places where men hung around the door waiting to rob women of the cash as they came out. Okay, And so there was a very definite financial advantage to having done this that went well beyond the savings of paper checks. Hmm. Right, and, But it requires understanding the problem and, and anticipating the gender thing. Now, um, another one would be... Um, you know, I have I have seen, for example, uh, Diageo in um, South Africa um, started um, setting aside. They made venture capital investments, and they started setting aside some to go to women. Uh, and you have to set it aside, and you have to evaluate it a little bit differently. 
because we know that in a supposedly gender neutral situation where you just sort of say, well, I'm making this money available to everybody, the gender bias in the financial system will ensure that most of the money goes to men. And that's just a fact. So if you don't, you know, ring fence it, um, you're not going to achieve a goal. The other thing is you have to recognize that women have, have barriers and risks to success in business that men don't have. Right? And that's going to mean that their growth is going to have a different pattern. Right? Not necessarily that it's going to be less, but it might be, for example, slower. Mm-hmm. All right? And so you need to invest, you need to evaluate it with a different model of expectation. Um, then there's also the whole question of, uh, you know, like you're a social impact investor or something like that, and you're, or, or you're a big company, and you're investing in uh, areas like women's health or girls' education, which there's a good bit about. And, and there's a whole different set of measurements you need to make in that situation. It's a lot of companies go in and they want to measure, for example, they want to invest in women's entrepreneurship, and they want to measure it as increased sales, right? And that has not turned out to be... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think um, measurements are kind of big issue across the ESG space at the moment, and catching up with the intentions is is what is needed. Right. And I, yeah. And what I've seen is that companies, uh, when they first start investing in this kind of thing, they first of all they do want to see something that they feel is objective and reliably measurable, like increases in income. And in truth, when you get in there. Um, that's it's, it's a really fuzzy thing. It's much more fuzzy than you think it is. And then another thing is they want to measure stuff like increased birth weights, all right, and children in school, all right. And the thing is, there are not only multiple factors. You can you can move that needle. You absolutely can move that needle, but you need to be realistic about the kind of uh, data you are capable of collecting. I mean. Collecting something like birth weights is something that needs to, the World Health Organization needs to do that. That's not something that's going to be doable at a real, realistic cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, they want to measure the gender effect because they've been told that it happens and they want to do that good and that's great. But it, I often have to talk them down on that. Okay, and then um, just finally then, ESG investors um, are looking at the sort of whole supply chains and possibly there's more um, kind of focus on this um, now than, than there has been. I mean, we've seen things like the Boohoo scandal has thrown some of these things uh, more into the light. But can you explain how this can affect women and what some of the challenges are when, when you look at supply chains? Yeah, okay, so I've done a lot of work supply chains but it's very important to be sure you know what you're you're, you're being stipulated you're stipulating what about the supply chain you want them to that you're talking about before you even start the conversation because um you can be talking about the impact on employees in factories for example or in the fields all right or you can be talking about integrating female entrepreneurs and as suppliers in their supply chain and those are two very different uh, agendas and some companies do try to do both, um, but you're going to have to treat them differently, evaluate them differently, obviously. Um, most of my work has been in the second one, entrepreneurs integrating them into the supply chains. Um, it is good to know, I think, that both of these things, when you, uh, because if you get women into the supply chains, you're going to improve that woman's um, 
income, but she's also going to hire people, right? And that puts more income in. And it's it's more likely that those women will hire other women and that they will promote them and groom them and train them. And so that has a very good effect pretty quickly on your women's economic empowerment and the good that's doing for the economy. It's also, um, so that they have, yeah, they have issues where uh, the main issue is access to capital. Um, and that has to do with their historical exclusion from owning real property. It's not just because they select, you know, they self-selected into being landless. Um, and so they have less capital. And for that reason, they can't go into the high capital uh, industries. And so to say, well, I'm not going to invest in women because they're in low capital industries that don't grow because that's chicken and egg, right? Mm-hmm. If everybody invests over on one side, then by definition, the other side's not going to grow because they're starved for capital, right? So there's the, the capital is the main thing, and we do find a lot of prejudice in the banks. And institutions like the World Bank are working on ways of trying to reduce that. So that's so that's one thing. Um, there are a lot of just really logistical reasons, and I detailed this a lot in the book, and I'm focusing on fairly poor women in that chapter, but those things do apply up to bigger companies that are run by women that they have uh, command over supply issues that you have to help them solve, for instance. Uh, they may have logistical problems that are hard for them to solve because they aren't properly networked into the business community um, because there's exclusionary behavior, right, um, and a history of exclusion that um, that they don't have access to know that you can hire somebody to ship your stuff from where you are to the, to the shore, right? To the mm-hmm. export processing zone. And then you want companies to, to a, approach um, the part that they are best equipped. So for example, uh, we had a situation where like Walmart and Coca-Cola and Marks and Spencer were investing in women farmers and buying their produce and teaching them how to do it. And so, but there's a problem shipping, right? Or even handicrafts, there was a problem shipping it's a logistical problem, it was an expensive problem. So UPS comes in there and says, okay, well, this is the part we can do, right? And help with that. So it's very important to pick the things you're good at because that's where you'll have the most impact. But and that requires knowing what the problems are. Yeah. Um, let me just add there are government issues too. Um, government corruption, we know from research, falls more heavily on women. So if you're dealing with exports, you need to, because there's going to be a difference in the way they're treated at customs. They're going to be more likely asked for bribes. Yeah, so. Mm -hmm. The companies that I worked with discover, among other benefits, like, you know, more innovation, reduced costs and things like that from dealing with a bigger base of suppliers. Mostly, you know, it's more competitive. but that all these programs, not just not just the entrepreneurship ones, but things like you know girls' education ones and things, Panther Big Pampers campaign on nappies, for instance, um, that employees really like those kinds of programs, and it's not just the women. Uh, people in, in companies they're global citizens too, and they want to feel like what they do is having an impact, a positive impact. And so it's quite a good thing to do for just lifting the morale of a company. It's quite a good thing to do um, to, um, yeah, just make people um, more likely to be retained. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I would want people to know that. It does seem to have consistently a very positive effect on employees. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Linda. It's been great to speak yeah. to you.
And well, I enjoyed it very much. And I hope I um, gave you some good information for your listeners. Thanks. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.